We acknowledge the traditional landowners of this country. We pay our respects to elders past, present and emerging. We would particularly like to acknowledge the traditional landowners of the land on which we stand. I am on Wiradjuri land. Tam stands on the land of the Dharawal people and Laurie on the land of the Tarabal people. We express our great gratitude in sharing this land with you. Remember our disclaimer, materials and content in this podcast are intended as general information only and should not be substituted for medical advice, diagnosis or treatment. Tam is really good at um, looking into backgrounds of people. <laughs> and we, we've always, you know, I just thought that the word we were using, Tam, in the past might be triggering for some people. So it's true. <laughs> yeah, I was like, maybe we won't use that word anymore. Um, and so I've started trying to do that too this morning, Jody. I was like, hmm, there's a lot about Jody that I don't know. I need to work some of this out. You got a pretty cool bio. I was like, oh, and I remember when you were talking at the coolest conference ever. That was PB Sydney, May 2022. And I still remember the APA conference in 2019 um, when you were talking about your research. And I just was like, oh my, it was just so interesting. We're talking about today pelvic floor and all the research that you've done in pelvic floor, but I don't even think any of that really has to do with the tennis side and you've got so much involvement. Am I right that they're not really combined? Not well, yes and no. I guess the only thing that I find that the tennis stuff really helps with is having worked in professional sport. So it gives True. you so much insight into working with elite athletes and the challenges that they face and perhaps the way that we have been looking at some of these things in elite athletes uh, typically and historically. So I have found that that's been helpful to bring in. And I guess the other thing is that the, the way that we address any rehabilitation or injuries in sport can, can translate across into pelvic floor and the way that we might manage the, the rehabilitation in those areas. So I guess that's where it kind of all molds together all gets together <laughs> because so correct me if I'm wrong if any if I put things together and you're like yeah that's not right um but I've got I've got your bio up here because you are lecturing at Monash University in the department of physiotherapy are you still doing that yeah sure yeah. Am. um and you are the co-director of the curriculum of physiotherapy program and the women's and men's pelvic health stream lead you got your bachelor of physiotherapy postgrad certificate in pelvic floor physiotherapy from the university of melbourne and then it was talking about working with the women's tennis association um, I did see that you are also working with the australian institute of sport Oh, I'm going to say it wrong. The Female Performance and Health Initiative Research and Education Working Group. I had to read that one because yeah. I missed that one. Um, <laughs> messed that one up. But And then your clinical experience was so much fun to read. Um, <laughs> we haven't even got to the PhD part. But there was um, working in, you know, private practice, tennis association, director of athlete care, um, working on you've done the Australian Open, Wimbledon, French Open, US Open, Master Championship, Tennis Australia, holy moly, and then went on to do your PhD. So wow. 
Yeah. So then what made you go, I'm going to do my PhD in pelvic floor? <laughs> yeah, I think like probably a lot of people, this is probably not an uncommon story, but I had babies. <laughs> <laughs> and I started talking to women around me and considering my own experience and considering, I guess, how um, get, considering my experience in working with elite female athletes. And at that time, um, there was quite a few women returning postnatally to tennis. Um, it was um, becoming more common to see women coming back and traveling with their children. And um, I started to just consider, you know, this seems like a really common um, symptom that people are complaining of with exercise, incontinence or prolapse. And I started reading and then started just becoming really interested in the topic. So did um, my postgrad cert. Um, I'm working clinically as a pelvic floor physio, but then also, you know, I guess being at the university and being involved in research, initially in sports medicine, I decided that, you know, this is an area I really wanted to work in and, you know, was fortunate enough to have some really amazing mentors at my university that um, have um, helped me start to research in this space. So, yeah, it's, 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 there's lots to be done. <laughs> I know I ask you every time I see you, are you done? No, I'm not. <laughs> nearly, I'm nearly there. Oh, well, look, we're going to talk about, you know, some of the research that you've done because you have done some very cool papers. So, Tam or Joe, would you like to start off with um, some questions on any or one of the papers? Or am I throwing you in the deep end? No, it's fine. Okay. I loved reading the online survey that I've heard you speak about before as well. Um, and obviously, it's all about figuring out whether pelvic floor disorders actually do create a barrier to exercise, which I dare say they absolutely do. Did you find any particular disorder? Because I think it was it urinary incontinence, prolapse, and also fecal incontinence that you had a look at. Was one more of a barrier than any other or what was what were the numbers there? Yeah, sure. So we looked at, so when we did the systematic review, we realised, I guess, that a lot of the papers had reported on the impact of urinary incontinence um, and, you know, that it negatively affected women's ability to exercise. But um, what we wanted to understand was whether that then did, did extend to other conditions that we know women experience during exercise. And so the other symptoms we looked at was pelvic organ prolapse, as, as you mentioned, but also anal incontinence. So we included leakage of wind dorsal. And we found actually that all of them have an impact. The one that probably, well, the one that was definitely the most prevalent in terms of the that women experienced the most in our cohort, and we had around about four and a half thousand women, and these women had experienced symptoms during exercise, either currently or in the past, or they were worried that they would. They were fearful that that might occur for them. So urinary incontinence was the most prevalent symptom. And in terms of stopping participation in exercise, one in two women who had had that experience of leakage during exercise had stopped their participation of at least one form of exercise or more. Um, but we also found that, you know, with pelvic organ prolapse, one in three had stopped a form of exercise and with anal incontinence, one in four. So the impact was, you know, broad across the, the range of pelvic floor symptoms that we looked at. 
That's obviously super high numbers, right? One in two, it's one huge. in three. Yeah, like not. So if they stop, did they restart a different type of activity? Did you get that data yeah. or yeah? Great question. So we looked at stopping a form of exercise. The other thing that we looked at was did they modify exercise? So a lot yeah. of women reported that they modified a form of exercise. So perhaps they switched to a more low-impact form of exercise or they reduced how they participated. So perhaps they avoided jumping or double unders in CrossFit or, you know, full yeah. sprint in a, in a fitness testing. But then we also wanted to understand, well, how much of a barrier is it? So not just whether they, you know, were able to go to a more low impact exercise, but across the board, to what degree did it actually stop them from participating in exercise? Mm. So we asked them to rate um, how much of a barrier or to what, what degree was it a barrier for their participation? And we found that across all the symptoms, if we combine them, one in three found their symptoms to be such a substantial barrier that it stopped their participation often or all of the time. Oh. And so those women were also at a higher odds of being physically inactive and obviously all of the, you know, the negative consequences of sedentary um, behaviour and, you know, the mental uh, and the mental impacts, the social impacts on that. So um, it, it looks that it's not just a matter of, oh, well, it doesn't matter, I'll, I'll walk, I'll just walk and keep exercising mm. anyway. For a lot of women, the barrier is so substantial that they're, they're, they're stopping their participation in exercise at all. Yes, as you say, the negative consequences of that is just unbelievable, right? And one in three, is that across all age groups then? Is that like, what? what's the, is it postpartum all the way to postmenopausal or is it more in one group than another? Yeah, so we did a couple of different explorations in that space. So one of them was looking at it as a barrier and urinary incontinence. Was, so we, we asked them what were their main barriers to exercise and we placed pelvic floor symptoms amongst other, you know, barriers that we know are really common for women. So a lack of time, mm, um, yeah. lack of energy, childcare, um, you know, busy at work, injury, illness, all of, all of the common barriers. And we put pelvic floor symptoms in amongst those. Mm. And across all age groups, incontinence was the most reported barrier at every age group until 56 to 65, where it sat really closely with injury, other forms of musculoskeletal injury and pain. Okay. Yeah. So across all age categories. The other thing that we looked at was um, are young nulliparous women stopping a form of exercise? And we found that one in three young women, so 18 to 25-year-olds, and nulliparous women had stopped at least one form of exercise because of their pelvic floor symptoms. So that the barrier extends across all age groups. And obviously, you know, in young women, that's really concerning because that's, you know, that's a lifetime of missing out on doing something that they love, that they feel passionate about, that's part of their social community and obviously, you know, has all the, the good benefits of exercise. So Yeah, yeah. And um, I can only, yeah, that's massive. I can only assume those nulliparous women, like we're talking about, things like netball running then are we or is it yeah, yeah. so we looked yeah. at um what sports as well that women yeah. only stop so um 42 percent of women who had experienced their symptoms whilst playing a high impact sport had stopped yeah. playing that sport and the sports mm. that they most commonly reported stopping were your um your sort of high impact sports that involve the jumping and the sprinting and the endurance so um volleyball basketball tennis netball athletics 
Um, but even in some of the, you know, even in low impact sports, 21% had stopped participating in those low impact sports as well. But I think women were more likely to continue with their symptoms in low impact sports. And I guess that may just be, you know, the degree of provocation in those sports. Perhaps the symptoms mm. aren't as severe in a low impact sport. So they're able to cope with those symptoms. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah. Did you um did you get any data on? Because I mean, I can only imagine that this does not, like you said, make them feel very good at all. Um, was there any data on how they actually did feel about this, about stopping? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So we looked at the degree of which they were bothered by yeah. having yeah, to make okay. those changes. And yeah, I the top of my head, I, I can't remember the exact stat, stat okay. but it was around about, I think it was one in three or one in two were moderately to greatly bothered about the changes they were having to make to their exercise. And something that we're doing at the moment um, with some more research is, is conducting some qualitative research with women where we're talking to them more about that impact um, and, you know, and and the, the impact on their well-being and, and um emotional status social status all of those sort of things but we know from other research that you know women you know they feel really um anxious and embarrassed and fearful of their symptoms but also just that they find it really frustrating that they're Mm. not able to exercise with their kids um our systematic review um synthesized the qualitative data on this and you know Mm. the things that were reported was you know that frustration about not being able to do spontaneous exercise or you know get out in the backyard with their kids and run around they were um, frustrated that they couldn't be a part of a group exercise because they were worried about leakage being visible or um, that someone might, you know, um, sense an odour or, Mm. you know, even to the extent where women, you know, talked about um, really being worried about participating in group classes because they were having to modify their exercise and then people were perceiving them to be lazy because Mm. they weren't going to that high impact state. Mm. So, Mm. you know, so there's a lot to cope with in that space for women who are experiencing these symptoms. Yeah, absolutely. I went to a boot camp the other day, Jody. My gosh, he was trying to push me. I don't have prolapse or any sort of pelvic floor dysfunction. Very lucky, but it is hard to say no, you know, let alone, I suppose, I mean, I say no, I say no, my shoulder can't do it, but it's yeah. hard, right? If, <laughs> Absolutely. if really that's not hard. the symptom. <laughs> Correct. It's really, really hard. It's hard yeah. to disclose. And then I think also if you do, sometimes women had spoken about the fact that when they when they perhaps said they couldn't do that, perhaps then they were isolated from the group and having mm. to do other mm. exercise on the side and felt, mm. then they felt kind of socially isolated as well. Um, so, yeah. yeah, it has yeah. a huge impact. I don't know. Prolapse, I feel like, is sometimes, uh, I don't know, like they behave potentially a little bit differently, like they uh, will more likely modify. Am I wrong there? Or they still do avoid? Like I feel um, clinically, I suppose, that they just want a bit more education as to how to modify certain exercises, whereas leaking, they get more annoyed that they just can't do it. Does that? Yeah, well, we we found that one in three with prolapse were stopping a form of exercise. Yeah, okay, and, so no. Yeah, in that systematic review, um, particular to prolapse, was some evidence that suggested that um, with prolapse, that there's that real fear of making the symptoms worse. Yeah, okay. So, you know, they were really worried that if they did mm. do things, that perhaps they were going to make things significantly worse. So I think yeah. there's that fear around prolapse sometimes as well, mm. or they've been perhaps told that they will make it worse if they do it. So they're yeah. very nervous to try. So, yeah, I think um, 
that's probably something that was unique in that in the systematic review we did in terms of the of the data. The other point of frustration for I think in this space is the fact that we know that we can help them, and um, I know we've discussed before, and I think that this has come out in your research as well, is just this low rate of disclosure to health professionals, and therefore um, we even though we know we can help them, we're not seeing them. So just wondering what you did find, if I'm right with that, and then and what you think about how, how we can improve that. Yeah, so, we, I mean, we know from um, evidence from other studies that the, there are really low disclosure rates for pelvic floor symptoms and particularly within sports and exercise settings. So whilst women may have told a family member or a friend, less than um, 10% have told a health or an exercise professional. And obviously, Whoa. That, yeah, and so obviously that's where the... Um, where the help is by telling those professionals and so then you know where when where um, these women are missing out on that opportunity to be able to seek help because they're not comfortable with disclosing their symptoms um we um have done some research looking into the factors that are disclosed that factors that affect disclosing symptoms um and we've also doing some mixed methods research in this space, which we've just finished. So I can't, I can't say too much because we haven't actually finished completely analysing the results on this yet. But even from other research and from the initial sort of quantitative work that we did, you know, one of the, you know, there was a number of factors that affect disclosure. Um, obviously, you know, embarrassment and that shame and stigma um, that's, that's prevalent in community dwelling women is also prevalent in in athletes and women exercising women in all levels of participation the other reasons I think that we've heard in different areas of the literature and again we found was that um, things like just not that awareness that there is things that can be done um, so not being aware of who they should tell or not knowing what the treatment options are. So a lot of um, women thought that they'd have to have surgery, didn't want surgery, so what's the point in telling anyone or not knowing that um, there's conservative management available, that exercise might be able to be modified, those sort of factors. And then um, I, I also um, just that sort of acceptance, like, well, you know, it, it's common, therefore it's something that I have to accept. Um, and so, and then the other thing we found was that often women hadn't told anyone because no one had asked them. Yeah, that's so, right. Um, they hadn't been given the opportunity to disclose their symptoms. And um, so that was another reason why they hadn't really said anything. Um, so, yeah, so there's, I guess there's a number of things that affect disclosure and, and we're, hope, we're doing some um, interviews which have really sort of, I guess the preliminary results we have done have really opened my eyes to that there's so many layers to the factors that affect women's willingness to disclose their symptoms um, and that, you know, that if we are going to implement screening within sports and exercise settings, we need to really carefully consider how we do that because we we, we said to women, um, if someone did ask you within a sports and exercise setting, so a health or exercise professional, if they did ask you, would you be willing to tell them? And it was really 50-50. So 50% said, yeah. yeah, sure, and 50% said no. And that was in a survey. So we've now gone away and we're currently doing some research to try and really understand and break that down because if we're going to make recommendations to sports and exercise settings on implementing screening and we want them to start doing that, we're going to have to do it in a, a really carefully considered way because, you know, just because you ask someone the question doesn't mean they're going to tell you the information. And um, So true. 
such a personal topic. I think in the mm. pelvic floor world, when we're in our when when we're in our pelvic floor and women's health clinics, people are coming expecting to talk about that those symptoms and that mm. topic. Um, so perhaps they're more willing to disclose. But in I guess in a sports and exercise setting, it's not something that has typically been such an open conversation. Oh, I can't wait for those results and get some more insight. I um, I wonder if. Um, over time when more women, particularly in teams, are starting to disclose or discuss their stress and incontinence as they would their ankle injury, that maybe it will have a flow and effect and become a little bit more um, acceptable to be transparent about your symptoms. What do you think? Yeah, look, we, ha- we, we did hear a lot about culture being a really important thing and that normalisation of the topic. I think also we have to... Um, remember that there's been a couple of studies that have looked at women's knowledge of their symptoms. So there's also, I guess, that level of, um, you know, many people would probably recognise that leakage is a pelvic floor symptom, um, but they may not recognise some of the other symptoms that are pelvic floor symptoms as, you know, pelvic floor symptoms and that there's something that treatment is available for and that they could do something about it and resolve it. So um, there's that sort of, I guess, we could... um, as a, as a whole, you know, both women's health and sports medicines communities get together and really try and do some more education for our female athletes, but also for the support and exercise staff that are working with them. Because I think um, if we are wanting to implement screening and, and help women within sports and exercise settings where symptoms are often provoked, we can't expect um, professionals to engage in that if they haven't got the knowledge, they haven't had the support, they don't know what the, where to um, set, refer, they don't know what the management options are. So I think we could really, and I, I remember, you know, I worked in sports physio, as we've discussed, for many, many years, and it wasn't something back, you know, 10 years ago that was at the forefront of our minds. Um, and I think there's a lot of topics with female athletes that now we're really starting to give more consideration to, um, and it's great to see that pelvic floor health is one of those topics that we're starting to think about more with our female athletes and, and starting to bring to the table. Do you think it'll be easier to um, educate the professional coaches with elite athletes as opposed to, because I just think the pool would be so much smaller and I don't know, you know, how they get their credentials, but as opposed to like the sport and recreational facilities, the PTs, everyone learns differently. Like how do you then and it's it's never a compulsory thing, right? If they want to learn more about pelvic pelvic floor, then maybe they have these opportunities to go learn more. But you want to embed it before then, right? Like from the beginning. How do you how do you do that? Yeah. I Can mean, you fix was, that for us? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I think it was um I think it's it's an important topic that, you know, things like, for example, you know, on some of the screening questionnaires that we have for pre-exercise screening where we ask about blood pressure and cardiovascular disease and asthma, we don't ask about pelvic floor symptoms. It's it's not included there. So it's not at the forefront of people's minds. Um, what I've what I've found has been really positive since I've been working in this space, though, has been just the willingness of exercise professionals across the board from all different levels to engage with this and, and to and that that realization and that willingness to learn more in this space so you know I think that um you know 50% of 
clients are women and when we can talk about the numbers of the women and their number of clients that this would be affecting I think you know once once people learn about that so whether we can implement that as part of you know the the qualifications for exercise professionals across the board then you know I think it, it's hard to annoy it's hard to ignore I should say those statistics and and how much impact it's having and um, you know I found a real willingness to to engage with the topic which has been really really great. That's why the use of research is so powerful, right, Jody? Because, you know, being able to go to, um, you know, Oz Active Australia and say, hey, <laughs> half your participant, half the female participants are dropping out. And so that's going to have an impact on, you know, all these um, businesses that you're supporting, I suppose, yeah. if we're talking about personal trainers and gyms and so forth. Um, and even the, the piece on performance, I, I think, um, you know, there's enough evidence to say, yes, I'm modifying my performance based on my symptoms. And so surely that's got some power. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and that's why we started here with the research. So we had a lot of prevalence data, um, mm. but just having symptoms, if they're not in fact, if they're not impacting you, if they don't have any effect on participation, performance, mental or social well-being, then there's nothing more to be done. You know, something's not a problem until it's a problem. So mm. um, that's why we started in this space so that we could understand what impact it was having. And I think that has been really helpful and powerful in terms of trying to communicate this um, to a broad range of women, exercise professionals, health professionals, because we can talk to the broad impact. Um, the other thing I found, though, when we were, you know, we've done a survey on exercise and health professionals um, and looking at the current practice for screening and management, but also their um, their enablers and barriers to future practice. And, and so to do that survey, we were engaging with a broad range of um, organisations and sports organisations. And again, a real willingness to be involved, a real willingness to listen to, to the topic. You know, you might say that pelvic floor symptoms in sport is not as trendy as ACLs and things like that. Mm -hmm. But actually, you know, it's been... Um, it's been well received within their sports community. And I think it, it, it's just, it, it's great to see these topics coming forward. Now, maybe the time is right that we can make some really big changes. Now with all of your research and all of the awareness and all of these women are going to be coming to us, to get our help and guidance. We better quick smart figure out the mechanisms behind the leaking. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> um, I we've heard you speak before about this um, these new U-boot kind of measurement tools that may be out there or coming that are going to help us figure out the leaking issue in a bit more detail. Can you tell us more about that? Yeah, sure. So um, I think, you know, with the the evidence, as you, as you just said, Joe, that the evidence on why um, so many young, nulliparous, really healthy women are experiencing these symptoms, um, we don't really understand that mechanism really well. Um, and we've, I guess, had some limitations to being able to understand that really well because of some of the outcome measure tools that we have available. Um, measuring pelvic floor function is more difficult than um, some other, you know, skeletal muscle measurements that you might be able to do. Um, a, because obviously a lot of the measurements are, are um, 
intimate or you know more invasive um, but also some of the tools that we've had um, has made it difficult so um, people like Melanie Morin the wonderful Melanie Morin um, who has done some recent um, validation of things such as she wave elastography looking at the stiffness of the puborectalis muscle um, and being able to validate that we can actually measure stiffness so both the you know the passive viscoelastic um, properties of the puborectalis but also the active component the contractile component is going to allow us to start to answer some of those those questions um, that I think are going to be really important so you know we've long hypothesized that that stiffness in uh, those muscles may be an important factor um, in looking at um, nulliparous stress urinary incontinence and um, tools like that that we now have available. Um, Laurie, we, we know, is doing some fabulous research with transperineal ultrasound. What about clinical measurement tools? Or we really still have so much more that we need to work out before we get there? Yeah, look, at, um, do you mean as in can we measure it in the clinic? Yeah, so I mean, obviously, we, we we do some good things in that space already with individual, um, you know, looking at urogenital hi hiatus and, hi you know, urethral hypermobility. And we do a great job of measuring um, pelvic floor muscles, static pressure and looking at timing and coordination. From a research point of view, I think it, um, it's been always quite um, difficult to look at how the pelvic floor muscles respond under load because of the influence of intra-abdominal pressure. So some mm. of our transducers, once you place under load, um, we get that influence of intra-abdominal pressure that makes it hard to know was that static pelvic floor muscle squeeze pressure or was that intra-abdominal pressure. Um, with some of the tools like EMG, um, you know, you you have to work really hard to overcome the crosstalk of surrounding muscles, keeping a transducer still, you know, um, an intravaginal transducer still to be able to measure the timing of a pelvic floor muscle contraction under load has been really tricky in research. But, you know, we've now got some great new tools available that are going to allow us to answer some of those questions. Um, and I think that, you know, I think it's going to be an exciting place to um, see what comes from the research going forward, because I think... Um, there's lots of lots of questions to answer and, and lots of great work to be done. Side note, Tam and Joe, the phys, is it what's the what's the um, uh, Instagram handle at the physiotherapy clinic? At Physio Clinic Education, I think right. is what you're going for. Yeah. All right, we'll put the link in because they often have like, oh, these are important measures and this is kind of yeah. how we do it. But Jody, you mentioned GH plus PB. What else was it that you had mentioned? You mentioned like two or three things. Yeah, we were talking about yeah. urogenital hiatus with um, diameter, um, urethral hypermobility, but also, you know, yes. um, you know, pelvic floor muscle strength, timing, coordination, but also measuring those things under load, I think is something, um, you know, I, I guess I kind of brushed over it because because it's a, a whole podcast. Yeah. Well, and also just because the research at the moment, we don't have the research to support um, some of the clinical management mm. of these female athletes. It doesn't mean that in the clinic we're not doing a good job of these things. Yeah, you know. So um, the research obviously helps us to um, be able to give that real evidence-based management um, to really have an intricate knowledge of the of the problem um, and to be able to design programs that we know are you know well supported by the literature. But we are we are in the clinic able to do some really great things with our female athletes by really doing that. That individual assessment to look at are we talking about 
timing and coordination of the active structures? Are we looking at needing to provide more support for our passive structures? So if we do have, you know, a wide urogenital hiatus, urethral hypermobility, a large GH plus PB measurement, do we need to look at, at least in the interim, providing some, you know, a pessary or some support for those passive structures while we are really rehabilitating those active structures? I think with, um, with, Female athletes, there's been a, there has been three or four studies looking at pelvic floor muscle training in high impact athletes, mainly volleyballers and um, basketballers. And they're small studies, but they did show a positive effect. And those studies, um, these small, uh, there's been a, a pilot RCT and a couple of um, studies that have looked at this, and they have focused also on that functional sport-specific pelvic floor muscle training. So making sure that that is performed under load in the way that the, that, that person is going to use their pelvic floor muscles. So with jumping and landing. And um, so I think that that's going to be something really important in the way that we rehabilitate our female athletes is using that principles that we have from, from our other sports rehabilitation to ensure that we're both assessing and treating the muscles in a functional way um, that's going to allow them to um, be tailored towards the load that um, we want them to work under. Mm. Can we pick up on urethral hypermobility, Jodie, mm. for a second? Um, because clinically, um, well, we know from the research that it is one very strong variable associated with stress incontinence <clears throat> in a lot for a lot of women. Um, clinically, we can see it under transperineal ultrasound. Um, and we, in our own clinic, are sort of it's sort of essentially now if someone walks in with stress incontinence, then transperineal ultrasound is part of the assessment. But obviously that's um, not everybody's got access to that. So we're trying to figure out whether or not we can palpate it, you know, and we're talking about proximal urethral hypermobility here. So I don't know whether you can, but sometimes I think I can sometimes. And obviously it gets confused if there's an anterior wall prolapse present as well what are your thoughts on clinical evaluation on urethral hypermobility I agree that it's difficult and I think the other thing we have to think about with our real high impact athletes is that how do you assess that during a high impact activity <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. no yeah, idea <laughs> yeah that's a huge consideration but um, I guess that's something else that people maybe in the clinics could consider looking at as well. But I agree, urethral hypermobility is, is a challenge, particularly in those really high impact loading athletes where they're only getting symptoms, um, you know, uh, with, you know, some double unders in a CrossFit or, or landing off a vault or, you know, <laughs> those really high impact exercises. It's hard to, because again, Australia, I feel like we're ahead of the game for so much. Um, <laughs> the use of ultrasound is not very popular in many other countries, like even Canada. Um, what about America, Laurie? Anyone in America? Well, Canada and America are not the same place. I know that. <laughs> <laughs> Just to be clear. Just to be clear. <laughs> I think... You know, the, all I'm, they, but they do have a lot of similarities. Um, as far as I know, it's not really common in kind of in either country. I think it's uh. slowly starting to pick up, but I, and I, I don't know why. I don't know if it's a, if ultrasounds are more expensive there, if they're less accessible. Um, but I do feel like a lot of people here, a lot of people that I know, a lot of clinics are using it, like even just mask, right? Shoulders, hips. Mm -hmm. 
Um, but I, I didn't see that or I haven't heard of that a lot overseas, but hope, I, don't, I don't know why. We'll have to ask someone. There's certainly some great research coming out of those spaces. So yeah, yeah. Again, from a, like a research point of view, they use it, but clinically, and maybe I just don't know the right people. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> I just don't know all the right people. So you're going to finish your PhD. You get all this really interesting, cool information. Obviously, mm. you're going to stay in the research realm. Yeah. Yeah. So, and you you talked a little mm -hmm. bit about some of the things you know that people are going to be looking at and some kind of screening tools where is there anything else within this space that you're wanting to know or working on well so first of all we've got the you know some recommendations that we're hoping to make so that the qualitative research I talked about we want to get that out and submitted and published so that we can start to to give women the opportunity to have that disclosure to feel supported to be educated and well managed within sports and exercise settings I think um, we need to understand some of the risk factors for um, pelvic floor symptoms in female athletes as well. So, you know, why, why you know, some women leak and some don't. Um, so we need mm. to sort of start to understand those. And for that, obviously, we need some bigger population studies so that we can actually do some um, analysis because to, to look at things like generalised hypermobility or um menstrual irregularity or some of the other factors that you know have been discussed in the literature over the years we need those bigger population studies to be able to investigate those and if we can do that if we can establish those that are at risk you know then we can start to screen for people that are at risk so we can hopefully start to get into that prevention space rather than being focused on waiting for people to get symptoms and then address it so I think that would be a really nice space to be in um, but I also have a real interest in the education space I, I, I I'm, I'm very keen to keep trying to raise the awareness of this issue within the sports medicine community I tried really hard with my research always to um, make sure that we're communicating it um, not just um, to um, other women's health physios, mm. but sure we are trying to get that into the sports medicine space um, so that we can support. Um, I recall you saying that you're getting the symptoms. Mm. I remember you saying you worked super hard to make sure that you got your big meta-analysis into the sports medicine journal. Yeah, I <laughs> did. The, yeah, <laughs> which is very clever. Yeah, I wanted I wanted that research to be in a space where um, you know it's it the the studies and the the survey that I did is in women that are that are athletes, whether it's grassroots athletes all the way up to elite athletes. We had um, you know three hundred around about three hundred elite semi elite athletes in that study. We also had you know more than four thousand women who are participating in some form of exercise. So I wanted to get that research into the exercise sports journals because that was the that was the inclusion criteria these are exercising women it's affecting their exercise I want to make sure that those people that are there working with those exercising women have seen this mm. and then when they know how to ask the questions right then we'll yeah. <laughs> see them in the clinic and then they can get help and then it won't be one in three Yes, that's the plan. I mean, wouldn't that be a nice, that's that's a nice um, lifetime mission. <laughs> it's a pretty good mission to have, that's for sure. <laughs> well, we can't do any of these things alone. So we all need, we can all do it together. <laughs> so you just spoke at the Melbourne conference at the MCG that I totally missed, although I got to see you at the aerobics competition. <laughs> that was so much fun. <laughs> um, are you presenting anywhere next? Are you planning anything? Um, 
when am I going to see you next? I don't know. I have actually, so um, the Women in Sport Congress, which was fabulous. Um, I actually can't think of anything better than spending days listening to amazing research on female athletes. It was, um, I, I just thoroughly enjoyed it. Great conference. Um, and after that, I, I, I just haven't had a chance to think what's next. It's just been so busy this year. I don't know. Like, I'll have to let you know. I haven't got plans. Joe, uh, Joe and I have been talking about going to, <laughs> to Boston for the one wonderful female athlete. We're going. We're not just talking, Jodie. Yeah. We're going. Wait, what's in Boston? What, what am I missing? Yeah. Marathon? Fabulous, fabulous <laughs> female athlete <laughs> conference. Um, um, led by the wonderful Kate Ackerman, Dr. Kate Ackerman in Boston. Great conference. Um, so if you're looking for a really great conference on female athlete and all things female athlete considerations. Um, when is that? It's uh, June, Joan? June? June 12 to 14. Yeah. And Not this year because June's no, last. Yeah. <laughs> and it's fun alternating from al on alternating years to the, um, the the Women in Sport Congress that was run this year. So um, oh, I, so they can... believe, I could be wrong, but I think they've got a hybrid model. So even if you can't get to Boston. Oh, that'll be good because June, I, I think Iuga is in like the Hague in June, which I was hoping to go to, but that's oh, not going to happen. Okay. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I like these, I like that people are keeping some of the hybrid, right? Because I really want to be there and I would rather be there. Um, but as you can, as you see, still in Australia, our airfares overseas are absolutely ridiculous. And I don't know if that will come down by next year, but it will for you too, because you'll be there. But well, I see ICS was great with that hybrid, you know, ability. As yes. well. So yeah. Um, Yes, I like it too, because it means we can go to far more things being Australian and so far away from everybody. Oh, definitely. <laughs> oh, I can't wait to see everything you do because you do it so well. And like I said, you speak so well and you're so nice to talk to. And I love all of your work. And I'm so glad that you're staying in this space. And yeah, hopefully you will come back on and tell us more about all the other work that you're doing. I would love to. Thank you very much for having me. It's been great. I've been, really enjoyed it. So thank you. Anytime. Thanks, Jodie. <laughs> Thanks, Jodie.